Welcome to Secrets True Crime. I am your host, Amber Sitton. What is done in darkness will eventually come to light. That is the purpose of this podcast, to shine light on the story of Susan Osborne and her 14-year-old son, Evan Chartrand. They vanished from their home in the tiny Alabama community of Holtville on Memorial Day in 2017. They haven't been seen or heard from since, and their bodies have not been found. This is episode 10 of a serial podcast, with each episode building upon the previous. If you have not listened to episodes 1 through 9, please stop and listen to it first, or you probably won't understand what's happening in this episode. Listener discretion is advised. This episode does not contain foul language, but the subject matter may involve violence, sexual content, murder, and adult themes. It's not suitable for younger listeners. If you know or have known Jerry, or knew Susan after she was married to Jerry, I want to hear from you. Someone knows something. Information you may think is small or insignificant could make a difference in this case. And you can remain anonymous. Secrets True Crime at gmail.com. In this episode, we are going to discuss Jerry Osborne quite a bit, and we are going to offer a lot of speculation. I want to reiterate that Jerry Osborne has maintained his innocence. To my knowledge, he still claims that Susan and Evan left their home with another man. We've spent the last nine episodes sharing what information we have related to Susan and Evan's disappearance. The ultimate question we had as we began this podcast is where are Susan and Evan? And I can promise you, there is a lot of focus and work going into answering that question. In 2018, the United Nations released a report in which they stated that the most dangerous place for a woman is in her own home. Let that statement sink in. The most dangerous place for a woman is in her own home. That's where most people feel the safest. Let their guard down and relax. Crime statistics show that one-third of all murdered women are killed by their current or former intimate partner. While Susan and Evan are still considered missing, foul play is suspected, and there has been no evidence that I'm aware of that supports a theory of them being alive and well. If Jerry is responsible for the disappearance of Susan and Evan, was it spontaneous or was it planned? The technical terms are spontaneous domestic homicide and staged domestic homicide, and we are going to look at what we know about Jerry, Susan, Evan, and their disappearance, and see which category of domestic homicide their case might fit. Spontaneous domestic homicide is unplanned. The crime scene is not staged, and the homicidal act is brought on by a stressful event or the buildup of more than one stressful event. Immediately, I have trouble fitting the circumstances of their disappearance into this category. If Jerry is responsible for their disappearance, I think we can easily say he did a great deal of staging. Things that I would classify as staging are the claim that Susan and Evan left with another man, the remodeling, the fires, and burning of things such as Evan's mattress in the backyard. 
Melissa saw video of the home that was taken by the investigators when they executed the search warrant. They said the house was pretty much wiped out. There was not even a bed in the house. There was hardly any furniture. There's no silverware, really, only like one fork, one plate. There was, pantry was completely empty. The cabinets in the kitchen were all empty. Most every bedroom was empty. There was ladders and paint still sitting around where he'd painted everything. And room, there was a recliner and a game system set up where it looked like he had probably been sleeping in the recliner and playing video games constantly. He had bought a brand new couch an entertainment center and TV or whatever right after. So there was a couch and a TV in the living room. But they said that there was hardly anything. And I know we saw a video of the house where you walk through. So my mother-in-law watched it to see what was there. I think there was maybe two pictures left on the wall that was actually that Susie had hung up. He stuck random weird military paraphernalia stuff hanging up on the walls. The only thing they said that they found in that house to ever see that there was a woman ever existed or lived in it was one can of girls shaving cream in the guest bathroom. That they said was the only thing that even pointed to a woman ever existed in that home. I would speculate that the stressful events would be Susan's discovery of the secrets Jerry had been keeping. We know she discovered he was working as a gay escort. And the things she found indicated he had been doing so for many years. Susan had repeatedly told Holly that she knew more and had so much more. I think about these statements a lot. I often wonder if Susan discovered an even bigger secret. Some secrets are so big and painful, you can't bring yourself to speak them aloud. Or Susan knew that once she had shared it with someone, she'd have no choice but to leave. Maybe she wanted to leave, but felt unprepared and not quite ready. She had previously indicated this to Holly. She was concerned about not having a job and not having health insurance for her kids, especially Evan, since he had chronic health issues. Another indicator of spontaneous domestic homicide is a prior history of abuse of the victim by the perpetrator. We don't know if there was any physical abuse, but we have presented a great deal of testimony that gives strong indications there was emotional and psychological abuse and that Susan was being controlled and isolated by Jerry. In spontaneous domestic homicides, there is almost always only one crime scene and that is usually the home of the victim. We do know that the last place Susan and Evan have been reported to be seen alive is at the home they shared with Jerry. There was a significant amount of blood evidence found in that home through luminol or a similar product. The crime scene is usually disorderly in spontaneous domestic homicides. Here's Melissa describing what she saw through the videos. There was blood in the guest bathroom or the kids' bathroom. There was blood in the tub and stuff area, like a cleanup job was done, maybe. The laundry room was a wash rag that had cleaned up blood that once it was covered in luminol, it would light up a room because it had so much blood on it. You could light a room with that. There was blood all over in 
the, I guess it would be like called the dining room kitchen area right in through there. There's blood all over the tile right at the back door by where the cadaver dogs hit. He had repainted and everything, but at that point it was like a, I would almost say a three foot circle where it was in the grout of the tile and on the walls and the blinds are the only window without blinds in that house is that door and the blinds are missing and there was blood splatter up that door and you know he repainted the walls already so that covered it up but it's on the wall but there's like a line where the blinds used to be where the blood stopped so I believe he took the blinds down because he couldn't clean them then the living room is beside that so right beside where this area was is where the living room was where he ripped up all the hardwood floor at the whole other end of the living room and that's what was left behind after a complete remodel so that hardwood floor is where i bet you most of all the evidence of blood was and i know they found blood in the boat but they said they believed that was fish but what was in his truck and the mop head glowed enough to light up a room and then he had that carrying that around in the back of his truck two months after they were missing and he took it to the dumpster right after they questioned him. But they went and got it because he took it to the military base dumpster. And so they went and got it. Based on the descriptions of the amount of blood evidence found by investigators, I'd have to say the crime scene was disorderly. The perpetrator usually uses a weapon of opportunity. It is something that was readily available in the home. Unfortunately, we don't know what happened to Susan and Evan, but we do know that the investigators found numerous guns in the home, and I think it is safe to say that there would have been kitchen knives and other common household items that could have been used if they were murdered. There are some other characteristics of spontaneous domestic homicide, such as evidence of undoing, where the killer washes and dresses his victim, and evidence of escalation of violence that indicates an argument occurred and escalated to the point of murder. Unfortunately, Susan and Evan had been missing for two months before their disappearance was reported, so we have no way of knowing if there was evidence of these two indicators. Alcohol and drugs are often involved. This is yet another indicator we don't have enough information to form an opinion on, but Melissa shared something with me that I've heard more than once as I spoke with people while preparing this podcast. I have been told that he's violent when he drinks and that he's creepy and he's got PTSD and he's a little off. Domestic violence researcher Robert E. Hanlon, PhD, and colleagues conducted a study that was designed to examine the neuropsychological differences between individuals who committed spontaneous domestic homicide and individuals who committed non-domestic homicide. Dr. Hanlon published a paper in the Journal of Forensic Sciences about the study called Domestic Homicide, Neuropsychological Profiles of Murderers Who Kill Family Members and Intimate Partners. I will post a link to the full paper on the Secrets True Crime Facebook page, but in today's episode, I want to mention some of the very interesting findings of the study. Dr. Hanlon's study results indicated that people who committed spontaneous domestic homicide are less intelligent than people who committed non-domestic homicide. They have lower IQs. They have more cognitive impairments. They are more impulsive. 
they have poor emotional control. They are less likely to use a gun to commit the murder. The study showed that a gun was used in only 14% of spontaneous domestic homicides compared to guns being the weapons of choice in 59% of non-domestic homicides. They are more likely to have a severe mental illness and often a psychotic disorder, but less likely to have a diagnosis of antisocial personality disorder. They are less likely to have felony convictions prior to the murder, and they are more likely to have a poor attention span. Over 80% have a history of head trauma. Almost 80% have a lifetime history of illicit drug use. Over 60% were under the influence of drugs or alcohol at the time they committed the murder. They're more likely to use a knife or other weapons such as baseball bats, clubs, and fists. Staged domestic homicides are planned. Stressors often lead to this type of domestic homicide too. The most obvious difference in staged and spontaneous domestic homicides is the crime scene itself. It typically points to an organized and controlled crime with very little evidence left behind. Fingerprints are wiped and murder weapons are removed. We know that immediately following the disappearance of Susan and Evan, Jerry began remodeling his home, ripping out hardwood flooring and replacing it with carpet, painting, and burning of furniture and other household items. Staging is very common. Examples of this are deaths staged as robberies, suicides, or even accidents. Could Jerry's claim that Susan and Evan left with another man fit staging? In the book titled Crime Classification Manual, A Standard System for Investigating and Classifying Violent Crime, it notes that in a staged domestic homicide, there is frequently an improvement in the relationship scene, and this apparent change of heart will be demonstrated in a highly visible manner to others. I spoke to Nikki a while back, and she described a story she'd heard from another neighbor. Apparently, Jerry and Susan did have at least one set of friends that lived nearby. They would hang out with them, but the neighbors, whatever their names are, said that they used to spend, you know, a good bit of time. And the last time that they were over there, which was a couple of weeks prior to the disappearance, they had come over there to their house and they left holding hands, walking down the driveway, headed back to their house. And so they didn't suspect that anything was wrong or out of the ordinary. Initially, Susan told Holly she had to get a job before she could leave Jerry. She was concerned about supporting her children and providing them health insurance. But the day Holly was leaving for her move to Key West, Susan told Holly that she and Jerry loved each other and had worked out their issues. This was three weeks prior to their disappearance. Another thing the book notes is that friends and family members will often say the victim expressed fears and concerns regarding their safety. We can certainly check that box. Susan and Evan had both communicated to Holly that Jerry had a temper, they had to be careful, and that he was crazy. If Jerry is responsible for the disappearance of Susan and Evan, 
there are some other factors that I think point to staged domestic homicide. All of these things are related to the timing of their disappearance. It occurred three weeks after Susie's best friend moved out of state 14 hours away. It occurred two weeks after Susie's mom visited. It occurred a week after Evan was out of school for the summer. And it occurred while Susan's daughter was with her father. There are circumstances surrounding Susan and Evan's disappearance that point to both types of domestic homicide. Another possibility to consider is that it's a little of each. It's possible that Jerry was planning to make Susan and Evan disappear, but something happened that caused him to act before he had all of his plans firmly in place. Every aspect of Susan and Evan's lives are being thoroughly investigated, and in the next episode, you'll hear from the private investigator working on the case. In the last episode, we shared information about the disappearance of another woman in Elmore County, Star Mulder. Since that episode was released, the Elmore County Sheriff's Office confirmed to a news channel that they do indeed have a person of interest in Star's disappearance. Investigator Wilson stated to me and to this news channel that their person of interest is the individual who initially filed the missing persons report. Investigator Wilson told me the news channel was able to obtain a copy of that report, and from that, they were able to identify the person of interest as Thomas Whitehurst, Star's ex-husband. With a lot of help from the private investigator working on Susan and Evan's case, we did a bit of research on Thomas Whitehurst. This new information was released right before my deadline for this episode, so there's a lot more to look into that I'll follow up on in a later episode. He grew up in Andalusia, Alabama, and graduated from high school there in 1974. He was listed in the yearbook as Tommy Whitehurst. He lived in Montgomery, and then it appears he moved to the Wetumpka area in 2004. Investigator Wilson described him as a tall, big man. We were able to locate his profiles on some social media. The first thought in my mind when I saw his profile photos? Santa Claus. It probably didn't help that in one of the photos he was standing next to a Christmas tree, but even without the tree, the resemblance would turn many a child's head at Christmas time. He has gray hair, a gray beard, and is wearing glasses. Investigator Wilson told me that in the beginning, Mr. Whitehurst was cooperative, but once it became obvious that he was a person of interest in Starr's disappearance, he hired an attorney, and the earlier cooperation came to a quick halt. While this season of the podcast is dedicated to Susan and Evan, their story led us to Starr's disappearance. We will provide updated information on her disappearance as it develops. Thank you for listening to Secrets True Crime. If you have any information that could help in solving the disappearance of Susan Osborne and Evan Chartran, please call the Elmore County Sheriff's Office at 334-567-5546. You may also email me at secretstruecrime at gmail.com. 
I want to say thank you to those who have contacted me with information and those who've reached out to encourage me. Each of you has provided a tremendous amount of help, and you are making a difference in this case. Not only am I appreciative, but Susan and Evan's families are so thankful as well. To those of you listening that have information and fear or something else is keeping you from reaching out, please just do it. Many like you already have, and any information they've requested be kept private is and will continue to be kept that way. If you are enjoying this podcast, please let us know by giving us a five-star rating and review in Apple Podcast. I'm active on social media and often share photos of Susan and Evan. Follow Secrets True Crime on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Secrets Crime. The audio editing and post-production for this show is by Kane Power at precisionpodcasting.com.